It was founded in 1871 and became known by some as the deepest of the Deep South. Its labor force was comprised of Irish, Italian, and African-American men working in the steel mills. During the Depression, FDR called it the worst hit town in the country. And even now in the aftermath of the civil rights movement, it remains socially one of the most enigmatic cities in the land. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. Watching America All my life It's panic in America Oh, 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 oh It's trouble in America Oh, 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 oh From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Welcome to Watching America. It is my delight to have the former captain, police captain that is, Teresa Katz. However you know her, the nation knows her, and moreover the world knows her as T.K. Thorne. Her latest work is entitled Behind the Magic Curtain. Secrets, spies, and unsung white allies of Birmingham's civil rights days. A prior nonfiction work was Last Chance for Justice, how relentless investigators uncovered new evidence convicting the Birmingham church bombers. So let me say without any further ado, welcome TK Thorne to Watching America. Thank you, Alan. It, it's really a pleasure to be here with you. And we are going to have the battle of the accents. <laughs> well, you win. You win. Yours is far more charming and, and, and wondrous. If I may employ my accent, though, I'd, I'd, I'd like to start with the introduction, if I may read it, uh, of, of your work. And uh, this is the, I think, really the cornerstone that sets everything in place for what this latest work, entitled again, Behind the Magic Curtain, is about. My guest, the author T.K. Thorne, writes... Much of the truth of Birmingham in the civil rights era is ugly, plain and simple. The book is not an attempt to revise that truth. The darkness, however, is always what allows the light. And in Birmingham's darkness, individuals, their light grew, some from shades of grey that bloomed into sparks and some lanterns of courage, painfully. And slowly, in tandem with economic forces, judicial justice, labor law reform, and street demonstrations, they led the way out. These stories about the darkness and the shades of the light in a city that literally brought change to the world are needed, perhaps now more than ever. Birmingham's meteorotic rise from a cornfield valley after the Civil War to a boom town in the late 1800s and early 1900s, earned it the nickname The Magic City. 
This is a beloved city known very well to my guest. Uh, I was going to say that, you know, most of her life she's walked on terra firma in that vicinity, which is true, but she didn't start out there. She actually started out in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, TK, I have looked at uh, dates and uh, it would appear based on your birthday, April 17th, 1954, that just one day prior to your birthday, uh, it was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King who was beginning his letter to compose the letter from Birmingham jail. And just a few months later, tragically, September the 15th, 1963, it was a Sunday and by this time you were fully nine years of age, was the infamous 16th Street Baptist Church bombing where four died tragically and, and moreover 22 were injured. The question I have for you, were you cognizant of these things? Did you did your parents let it be acknowledged or out of the best intentions perhaps, did they kind of keep it submerged as a topic and, and not bring it to your attention? If I'm relying on my memory, I would have to say the latter. Um, I've my parents, uh, I was very fortunate that my parents were progressive people in, in Montgomery. And uh, my, my grandmother and grandfather had a cross burned on the yard from the, the Ku Klux Klan in the 1950s because of their uh, activities. But I don't remember it being discussed. And later studying this, um, I spoke to African-American children who were about my age at the time, and they say that it wasn't discussed in their homes either. And I, I, the only thing I can conclude is that it was, it was such a traumatic event that parents were trying to protect their children. And yes, I think feeling safe and trying to create an environment where their children felt safe was what was on their minds. But, you know, we have this in other examples. I'm Jewish and I was never, uh, the Holocaust never came up in my house when I, as I was growing up, unless I specifically asked a question later on. And, you know, World War II veterans or other war veterans came home and didn't want to talk about it. Well, there was a, a very much a, a mindset, as, as you are aware, of uh, protecting protecting the innocent, protecting the young. I'm very intrigued also about uh, you growing up in the South, Jewish. You know, I, I have uh, had a previous guest on the show, Ben Beard, uh, and he wrote a book, recent book, called The South Never Plays Itself. It's an examination of how the South is depicted in movies, which very often, as I'm sure you're aware, is quite inaccurate. But one of the neglected groups of people who are not thought of as much, although they are present very much in the South, are Jewish persons like yourself. And the only literary work I can think of, which, uh, and you can correct me in this because you'd be far better versed, that depicts Jewish people in the South was the play um, Driving Miss Daisy, where you have uh, Miss Daisy herself who is Jewish. She's a Jewish widow. Um, obviously, there are, you know, significant synagogues and what have you there. But growing up in the South, in basically surrounded by a sea of Southern Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterians, maybe Assemblies of God. That must have given you slightly a sense of being the other in some degree. Did you grow up in a household where you celebrated Shabbat on a Friday night or was it a, a more secularized kind of Jewish experience you had? Um, in Montgomery, which and this town reflected a lot of Southern cities, uh, there were kind of two 
two Jewish worlds. One was the descendants of the German Jews, and they, and this, this is true also in Birmingham, uh, the German Jews, uh, they, they became the reform temples, which were much more secular than the Eastern European immigrants were more of a more traditionally orthodox or conservative. And that was true in my, in my city, and they didn't mix. And so I grew up very reformed. And at that, reform itself has changed over the years, but at that point in time, it was very secular. And we did not, um, they still had services. They had Shabbat on Fridays, but we didn't go very often. My only exposure really was on Sundays. I went to Sunday school. And I really interacted very little with other Jewish children other than on Sunday mornings. So you essentially, I would imagine, had a consciousness, uh, a strong consciousness of being Jewish uh, without having to wear, you know, a display of that background just to kind of, I guess, just immediately assimilate into the culture around you. It doesn't sound like it was a great effort. One of the interesting things that um, occurred in your early career, well, even before your career, you were intrigued with the idea of writing. And that mainly came from a loving grandmother who actually, as you've put it elsewhere, kind of pushed you along by reading books to you that had a more expansive lexicon or vocabulary than would be normally age appropriate. But that did you a lot of good. Oh, it did. It was, it's one of the, the joyful memories I have of my grandmother reading to me. And she had a very creaky voice, which I'm starting to sound like her myself. Uh, but she read to the blind as well. And I remember watching her reading what seemed very, very boring books to a recorder, old tape, tape recorder, for hours on end. But she read to me and she read, you know, as you said, she read a lot of books that were were over my head, and I always felt bad at stopping her and asking what a word meant. But later, looking back, I realized that that was kind of the plot all along. <laughs> Very clever, Granny. Um, the other thing is, as a, as a young girl, as I understand it, you really aspired to be attracted to elements of adventure, including the concepts of aliens, uh, not aliens as far as from other uh, lands on Earth, but actually in outer space. So with great um, anticipation, you hoped that the flying saucer men were coming and uh, readily were hoping to see them each night. But unfortunately, they didn't. So then you entertained the idea of possibly becoming an astronaut. And so you went to your daddy, who was a, a civil engineer and had been in World War II doing the same kind of work. And you, and you said to daddy, how do I become an astronaut? And uh, he sat you down and gave you some rather sobering advice. What was that? Well, first, I didn't go to Daddy to ask him that. I actually wrote a letter to NASA. Um, at, at I think I was about 10 years old. And I took it to my mother to proofread. And I, I think I, I didn't want to take it to my father, but she shared it because she thought it was so cute. Um, the letter was asking what courses I should take in college in order to be an astronaut. And, of course, at that time, the only astronauts were fighter pilots in the military. And, of course, they were all men. 
But when after mother gave the letter to my father, he called me in for this, this discussion and told me that I couldn't be a, uh, an astronaut and I needed to revise my life plans. Well, I was crushed. But looking back on it, it was very interesting that he didn't tell me that I couldn't be an astronaut because I was a girl. What he said was that my eyesight was too bad. And, uh, and what I learned later was that my father himself had tried to be a pilot in, in, uh, in the Navy. And he was disqualified because his eyes, eyesight wasn't good enough. Wow. So there, there was a, a moment of significant uh, resonance going on inside him when he had that conversation. Yes, but I didn't learn that until later. So for me, it was just, I was just crushed. Yes. And, uh, and I, even though I was interested in science, I decided I didn't want, want to go that route. My mother tried to convince me that I could still be a part of the space program and, uh, you know, help from the ground in science. And, you know, I was just looked at her like, are you crazy? The whole point is to meet aliens. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you eventually go to the University of Alabama and then you go on to study uh, at the graduate level and summa cum laude, you graduate with a social work degree and uh, you write an, an article, uh, academic article, which is shown to the local police chief, as I gather, and he's incredibly impressed. And as a consequence, or as a result, I should say, what happened next? Well, I, um, I was asked to go to work for the police department by the police chief who needed a grant writer. And I, you know, I was second to meeting aliens. I wanted to be a writer. And that actually overcame the, fir- the earlier a life career choice. Uh, in the past, I had an opportunity to to write grants, you know, appealing for grants, and I, I declined to do it because, from my perspective, I can't think of anything more dreary than than writing <laughs> grant proposals. How did you do that? I mean, you you naturally have a proclivity uh, towards narrative and uh, fiction and combination of fiction and and, and realistic uh, crime writing as well. How did you endure for two years? Because it was two years later that you became sworn in as as a police officer. But how did how did you get through that? I mean, did you actually enjoy writing these grants, these grant proposals? No. (laughs) (laughs) I love you. That's great. (laughs) Okay, so (laughs) so you write these things, and uh, what was life like? You'd come home each day. Did you have children at this point? Were you married to? I know your husband's Roger, but. yeah, I was married. I, I'm a, I'm on number three marriage right now. Okay, that was all right. Those were the days of number one. Uh, but actually, writing grants is what it what eventually led to being a police officer. And I I will explain that. Uh, I was you know fresh out of college, no background or idea about police work other than this paper I wrote, and the paper was about police social work. And it was one of a list that was given to us to pursue. And the reason I picked it was because it was in Birmingham, the program, the police social work program. I was in school in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, 
but I was living in the Birmingham area. So what attracted me was merely the fact that it was set in Birmingham. Uh, and because of that one little fact, my whole life changed. I wrote the paper. The chief asked me to write grants. So, you know, for a newly graduate, a job of any sort is quite attractive. So, so I said yes. And I went there, and I, the first grant I was supposed to write was computer-aided dispatching. Now, this is in the days before computers, really, certainly before personal computers. And this would have been the city's first computer. But beyond that, it was, it was about dispatching, which is you know, when you're calling the officers and telling them what calls to go on and so forth. And I went to the chief and said, look, I don't know how to write this unless I ride with the officers and, and figure out what it is that they need in this system. And he said, yeah, sure. So I began to ride with the police officers. And, uh, and that, you know, after a year and a half, I decided that was much more fun than writing grants, which I'm sure you will understand. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, uh, going from, you know, 1976, you had that transition into 1978 where you're sworn in and you go to the police academy and what have you. By that time, there had already been the successful series Dragnet, uh, which originally was on the radio in the 40s and 50s and then became a TV series. And then it kind of went by the wayside. But there was a show called The Rookies. I don't know if you remember that. On, on television. So how did um, your real-life experience being in a squad car measure up to the fictionalized presentation that America saw on its television during that decade? I never saw Rookies, maybe because I was working during the time it was showing. And back then, remember, you couldn't just take something and watch it. If you weren't there, you didn't get to see it. Um, I do remember Dragnet. Uh, probably from earlier, I think Dragnet goes back. And then even before that, good Lord, I remember Car 54, Where Are You? Yes, yes. Okay, way back. But I, I would say that it was more like Hill Street Blues than any of those, except Hill Street Blues compacted it, you know, in, in the time frame. But that's what I loved about it was that I, you know, that you didn't know what was going to happen next. And I loved that. And, and perhaps that goes back to wanting to be an astronaut. So I never, I never got to meet aliens exactly, but I did get to meet a lot of strange people. <laughs> well, magnetically, there's a kind of, if you will, a thought process attraction, uh, which is natural, I think, between your experience being in the squad car and what has been going on in recent history, uh, certainly in Minneapolis and places like that across the country. Were there still, even though you were part of the aftermath of the civil rights movement, as far as your police work concerned, were they were there palatable issues, um, tangible issues, that were ever present when you were in the squad car when dealing with interracial issues, or was it uh, not as fervent as it has been with this resurgence of problems over the last five years? That's an interesting question. From my perspective. I only witnessed what I would say was an abuse of power physically one time, and it was by a particular man and the other, the other officers that were with me and were closer to the suspect at the time intervened and stopped him. Uh, 
that really is the only time I personally saw anything. But the late 70s was a transitional period. So it was still, um, there were still issues in terms of how the African-American community was looked at by police officers. And part of that, I think, is due to the fact that, that they are exposed to the worst elements of any community because that's where they're called upon to intervene. So there's, you know, there's a lot of cultural back and forth about, about police attitudes and how they, how they come about, and it's tougher to address them. But one thing I did see was that, the, that policies and rules actually led to changes. Um, the department came down really hard on, for example, officers using the, the N-word, and that began to change the culture, I think. When you came to police service, was it pretty common for the N-word to be employed by various people, or was that exceptional? It was in an in-between stage. I don't think it was like it was in the 60s when that was a common word. I think it was it was used as a derogatory word and and not not towards everyone but um, particular individuals in describing their behavior so in a sense it shows showed a little progression from the 60s for sure uh, but not where we would like to be what made you decide, TK? And let me just remind the audience, I'm speaking with TK Thorne. She is the author of a marvellous book. Yes, again, she writes so many of them. Behind the Magic Curtain, Secret Spies and Unsung White Allies of Birmingham's Civil Rights Days. What inspired you at this point to uh, address the subject? And the other thing I'm curious about is the voice that you adopted to be able to write it. Well, the answer to the first one is I had no intention of writing this book. Um, It was not my idea. Just as writing uh, my previous civil rights book, Last Chance for Justice, about the church bombing, came out of the fact that I was was frustrated that the, the stories of the investigators had not been told or recorded in any way, and I offered to do recordings with them. And when we were through, they turned to me and said, uh, we want you to write a book, rather than just giving these recordings uh, to a museum or something. And that's how I started on that project. And in a similar way, I was minding my own business and found myself um, it was in, in, in 2013 because Last Chance for Justice had just come out. And I was minding my own business. I was uh, at work, not in the police department, but in my second career job. And I found myself included in an email conversation about a mysterious the book. And I replied to all and said, I think you've made a mistake because, you know, somehow I've gotten on your email group list. (laughs) And it turned out this was, these were four elderly gentlemen uh, in the community. And they said, oh, no, you're not on it by mistake, even though they had never introduced themselves or, or said anything to me. I was just privy to this conversation between them. 
uh, and we would like to talk to you about writing a book. Um, and I was invited to the law offices of Sorodi Permute, which is a very well-established law firm in town. If they had invited me to a bar, this would never have happened. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I decided to go and just, you know, just being curious, although people all the time say, I've got an idea for a book and, and, let, and throw it at you. And normally I'm like, no, thank you. But I went and... These gentlemen, it was in the law office of a Jewish attorney, Carl Friedman. I didn't know any of them at that time, but Carl played a significant role in during the civil rights. They were all in their 80s. Carl was pushing 90 or may have been in his 90s at the time. Um, and I said, well, what book is it that you want me to write? And one of the gentlemen, another Jewish attorney, said, well, we want you to write the story about the real story about Birmingham, the story that's not been told or the side of the side that's not been told. So what are the sides that have not been told? Well, that I didn't know at the time. Uh, I had no idea. Uh, but the sides were some of them were about white allies that had worked behind the scenes. Uh, and that included the Jewish community, included members of the, the Christian community, businessmen. Um, it, it was about the change in Birmingham's government that was put into, put into place right before uh, Martin Luther King came to Birmingham. But it was also about uh, one of the men was a reporter or had been a reporter for the major newspaper, which was the Birmingham News, in the in the state really, and he uh, he had stories of his own. He's the the spies part of the title, secrets and spies. He had worked sort of um, uh, not sort of he his beat was the the police department, but he became so very close that he almost became part of the department or part of a secret section of the department. And he was the, the person who um, learned and brought the technology to do wiretapping to the police department. So all this I did not know. And I said, well, what makes you think I'm an expert on civil rights? Is it because I wrote Last Chance for Justice, the book about the church bombing investigation? And uh, uh, one of the gentlemen said, oh, no, not that book. And I said, well, I'm, I'm curious what book made you think I could write this? And he said, Noah's Wife, which took me aback. And I said, okay, I've got to ask you what about Noah's wife made you think I could write this, this story about civil rights and behind the scenes in Birmingham. And he said, well, I just read it, and i got to tell you, anybody that can make me believe that this woman who was Noah's wife lived like this uh, thousands of years ago can write this book. So... That's how it started. My initial reaction to that was, no way. 
uh, you know, that is way over my head, to be honest. And I'm not that interested in civil rights to spend what turned out to be years of research. But what I'll tell you what turned me around. Tom Lightford, the reporter, said, well, I've written down some notes and, and little stories and vignettes, and I'd like to send you one. And I said, sure, go ahead. So he sent me one, which uh, is the basis for the prologue in the book, where he had sat down with his, his boss, the managing editor of the news, and was set on a path that changed his life and changed the course of Birmingham, and I was hooked. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I am delighted to say that my guest is T.K. Thorne. Now, many of you will recognize that name indeed as a very successful person as a writer. And also those of you who are familiar with her work will also know that formerly she was a, a captain of a police department. Uh, and her full name was originally, well, still is actually, but Teresa Katz. But she writes under T.K. Thorne. She's written many successful works, uh, Noah's Wife, Angels at the Gate, uh, The House of Rose, and her most recent work, which is entitled Behind the Magic Curtain, Secrets, Spies, and Unsung White Allies of Birmingham's Civil Rights Days. And I have asked her beforehand, and I'm so glad that she's willing to do it, it should be so kind as to read from the prologue. Ladies and gentlemen, T.K. Thorne. Blurry-eyed from an all-night stakeout with the Birmingham Vice Squad, reporter Tom Lightford pushed through the second floor doors of the Birmingham News into the sprawling expanse of the newsroom. To his weary ears, what was normally a familiar background noise sounded more like the pepper of gunfire, the syncopated clacking from the battalion of manual typewriters and the AP teletypes that on rare occasions punctuated their own clatter with bells to alert the copy boy of a newsflash. He wound his way between the crowded desks past the newsroom's heart, the city editor, who sat in the inside curve of the horseshoe-shaped news desk, barking out assignments, editing stories, and laying out copy. Near the news desk, one of the switchboard operators perched on a high stool and wearing a headset waved to get Lanford's attention. He ignored her. He'd been up all night and gone home only long enough to shower and change clothes. Coffee was priority one. An intravenous injection would have been welcome, but all he had was the to-go cup he had picked up on the way in. With an impatient sweep to make room for the cup, he displayed the stack of unreturned pink phone message slips on his desk, pried off the lid in the vain hope it was still hot, and downed half of the tepid coffee before acknowledging the switchboard operator's now frantic gestures. She pointed to his phone and mouthed in exaggerated mime, he's on the phone. There was no doubt who he was. Langford snatched the phone out of its cradle, but before he could bring it to his ear, much less say hello, Vincent Townsend's voice barked through the receiver. Langford, get in here, my office. Got something I need to talk to you about. 
Mississippi-born Vincent Townsend Sr. ruled the Birmingham News, controlling all operations from the presses in the basement, the advertising on the mezzanine, the news department on the second floor, and on up to the production department on the top floor. Almost no Jefferson County or Birmingham politician was elected to office without his support. J. Edgar Hoover had a standing order that any new agent in charge of the FBI office in Birmingham was to make his first call to Vincent Townsend. Townsend's official title at that time was general manager and assistant to the publisher, but he was arguably one of the most powerful men in the southeastern United States and certainly in the Magic City. Langford took a breath to answer his boss just as Townsend changed his command. Wait, you had breakfast yet? Julia's out of town and I'm damn well about to starve to death. Without waiting for a response, he added, meet me downstairs in five minutes. For 40 years, Townsend had lived and preached the motto, deadline, deadline, deadline. With five daily issues of the news to produce, it was not his habit to wait for grass to grow and he didn't expect his reporters to either. Langford sighed. At least it was a chance for a hot cup of coffee. Five minutes later, he and Townsend sat at the usual front table in the newspaper's crowded first floor snack bar. Sleeves rolled to his elbows and tie already askew, Townsend unfurled his napkin with a flourish and laid it in his lap. He was not a physically imposing man. His hairline receded in twin orbs leaving a thin wave of black in the center. The balding semicircles on either side emphasized an already high forehead and intense eyes that missed little. Townsend was always in motion, a swirl of energy that pulled everyone into his orbit, even at breakfast. Tom, you know we have a, got a crisis on our hands, he said, blanketing his eggs under a layer of black pepper. It was the fall of 1962. John F. Kennedy was president. His brother, Robert Bobby Kennedy, was the attorney general. J. Edgar Hoover ruled the FBI with an iron fist, believing communism to be the gravest threat to America, and Dr. Martin Luther King to be a communist sympathizer. Joe Namath played football for the Alabama Crimson Tide. George Corley Wallace Jr. as the Democratic Party's candidate was guaranteed the governorship, and Birmingham teetered on the cusp of a historic vote that could turn the city upside down. This is Watching America on WHRV. We'll be right back. We've been talking to T.K. Thorne. Her latest work is entitled Behind the Magic Curtain, Secrets, Spies and Unsung White Allies of Birmingham's Civil Rights Days. You've described going through a 10-year period to write this book and um, that you struggled with it and then there was a breakthrough turnaround when you got the notes to the reporter's observations. And after 10 years... Uh, laying this work as, aside must have, have felt like a tremendous weight off your shoulders. The closest thing I can relate to that is doing a dissertation for my doctoral uh, work. And I think just about everyone who's gone through that process, once you've finished it, 
uh, you just want to lay down in the grass and look at the sky and say, I can't believe it's off my shoulders. But now that you have this tome which is completed, um, what's, what service do you think it will provide or do you aspire and hope it will provide beyond the actual beautiful writing of it? Do you hope it will be some kind of, to use a, a biblical concept, a, a solve, a, 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 if you will, socially helpful healing agent? Is that your, your hope for this work? It is my hope, but I have to say this. I, I wrote it and I became, the more I wrote, the more I researched, I became intrigued with this, the individual stories that had not been told. It had to be set against the backdrop of the, you know, extraordinary bravery of the black people who marched and wanted to change things. But there were also white people who did extraordinary things. And one of the things that really stood out to me was how hard it was to do that, how, how difficult their environment was. And it, I say this not in any way to diminish anything that was done in the black community or the leaders or the sacrifices, but they had their own community to support them at the time, or for the most part anyway. The white people who stepped out were stepping completely against their culture and against their, their community's values. And they, they had only a small group of people to turn to for support. And it was very, very difficult for them. And that, that part of the story has been in the shadows, um, I guess. But it's important because, you know, just to be frank, living in Alabama, um, I encounter a lot of that also. Uh, prevalent community values are not always my own values. And it's tough to speak out. And sometimes you get hurt by people that you care about or thought highly of and hope they thought highly of you. And find, to find out that they disapprove strongly of you is, you know, it's, it's not easy, even today. Uh, um, so I'm hoping that this will be an inspiration to people uh, to know that, that, that it's possible to do this and what it looks like. And give them fair warning of what it can feel like to do it, that there's a cost to it. Um, but the more, the more people who stand together, the easier it is. So speak up and stand up. In the, uh, in the land of Israel, you have Yavashem, which is the Holocaust Museum and location in Israel. And they have the uh, planting of trees and the name of those who were the righteous who defended Jews at their own risk. Uh, there's nothing equivalent to that, uh, obviously, for Caucasian people or white people, if you prefer, um, that I'm aware of. And yet you've hit upon something very true, that those who were willing, particularly in the South, to come out and to say, no, 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 we're against, against what's happening to the black community, we find this egregious, uh, did so at high cost, high cost of their business, social bearing, family, um, being ostracized. Uh, and and I can't think of many works which have addressed that. Now, we certainly have had people that have looked at the the bus issues, um, for instance, uh, you know, the Help, the movie, uh, we can all think of 
that major work, but there isn't a lot of films that address the intricacies, as you say, of those who were brave and took risks themselves in, in the process. The question I have for you now is, uh, as you venture forward, uh, are you are you slightly depressed? It, it seems to me that we've gone socially retrograde. Um, I do remember the 80s as being far more racially harmonious. Uh, maybe it was a delusion. And, you know, a lot of people might say, well, you, you can say that and what have you. But it did seem that the nation, in by and large, was more content racially. We had um, elected governors and mayors of major cities. The governor of this state, uh, where this program is emanating from, the Commonwealth of Virginia, there was an African-American um, uh, governor back in the 1980s. Um, the mayor of L.A. was black. I, you know, we've had black mayors in, in New York. Uh, Andy Young, uh, civil rights leader at Atlanta and, and, and what have you. So we've had these persons who were in positions of, of prominence politically and there was a time back in the day where, you know, Michael Jackson was the leading artist for all of the, the latter issues, which have become embarrassing. You had Bill Cosby, who nearly bought NBC. It just seemed things were a lot more harmonious. And then we get into 20 years into the new century, and then it's as if we're going retrograde right back again to the tensions of 1963 to 65. What do you make of that? I believe that, that history is a series of pendulum swings, um, and I think we're in one. I think we are in a reaction. You know, that's a wonderful question. As I wrote in the book, there, there's lots of layers to that answer, but I feel the same way that you do. I feel that we're in a swing where uh, people who feel that their uh, white people feel that their their rights and their place in society has been questioned and attacked, and so they've they've stood up and pushed back in what feels right to to them. Uh, but but because of that, it you know it, because of their their outspokenness. And, and the fact that they feel free to say the kind of things that they, they're saying and doing, it, it's frightening uh, to know that that exists in society. I really think that has never gone away. Um, I think that it has sort of went into hiding, as it will do when the culture changes against it, because people who feel that way have the same pressures as people who are you know, on the progressive liberal end, uh, it's they react to what what kind of support they get. You know, what is right is is very hard to define because everybody deserves to be heard, uh, black and white. So, but our culture does not easily lend itself to that kind of uh, complexity. Let me, before we conclude, uh, I'd like to approach two things. I've always felt that Southerners, and obviously I was born and raised in Britain, so but American Southerners have to constantly work with the stigma of it being assumed by many, not by all, but by many, that they're immediately bigoted just because they're from the South, uh, which is kind of... Interesting, because if you look, for instance, at Germany, people will look at young Germans and they don't assume that young Germans, and they haven't for the last 40 years, that every young German or middle-aged German you saw at one time was necessarily a Nazi. 
But there is this, this very negative onus which still continues to exist for Southerners that, okay, they're from the South, they're going to be uh, bigoted, they're going to be limited, etc. Uh, and, you know, you go back to cultural things like uh, Neil Young singing Southern Man and uh, uh, this whole idea of just the perpetual nature of, of um, uh, Southerners being intolerant and what have you, which for all intents and purposes, does not seem to be... You're always going to have prejudiced people. You're always going to have bigots to some degree in every culture, everywhere on the planet. But uh, it doesn't seem to be a truism as much anymore, and yet that's still there and remains. Why? Is it because of perhaps the historical re-examination of these things that happened in the 60s? Uh, or do you think it's just a, a shortcut of most people's minds that they immediately go to that? And do you find it offensive? I think that we as human beings are wired to make things simple. There are evolutionary reasons for that. We, you know, we had to make quick decisions like this is good. You know, cave and fire is good and uh, wolf chasing you is bad. That's that's simple. Uh, So we're wired uh, evolutionarily to simplify things. Our, our conscious minds are not, it doesn't, doesn't have the bandwidth that our subconscious even does. And so we tend to simplify things. And although that is useful in a lot of ways, in terms of history and, and, and judgments, it is not useful. It can lead to errors in our thinking. And that's one thing that happened to Birmingham was because of the confrontations in 1963 in the park uh, with uh, children and, and one man, Bull Connor's decision to bring out the uh, police dogs and the fire hoses and turn them on the children. And because the news media covered that extensively, Birmingham was branded with that image. And even today, when if you watch, you know, any kind of news uh, about the city or the state, they'll flash those pictures up because, and that has become crystallized into what what Birmingham is. Just as our founding fathers are very were complex men, and and yet we have you know we've idolized them as as heroes, and to find out things about them that that aren't so great causes us a lot of angst because we want to just have, you know, heroes and villains. And that's the way our stories are written. And that's the way the story in our head is written. And that's the way history is written. We've been talking to T.K. Thorne. Her latest work is entitled Behind the Magic Curtain, Secrets, Spies and Unsung White Allies of Birmingham's Civil Rights Days. My final question for you is uh, your sense of self as an artist, uh, as a writer, you are an artist. And so I'm curious if you modeled yourself either consciously or unconsciously of the likes of... Um, you know, Tennessee Williams as, as a writer or perhaps uh, other uh, writers, I mean, Tennessee Williams primarily being a playwright. But uh, were you influenced by Faulkner and people like this? How do you think of yourself as a writer? What an interesting question. I think of myself as simply myself. 
And I, you know, if you look at the books that I have written, written, and I have several more that I wrote, you know, before I was published, I am all over the map as far as genre is concerned. Um, I write what interests me, and I go where I'm, where I, my curiosity leads me, and it has led me in a lot of different places. It's it's led me to the the far distant past in Israel and Turkey, and it's led me to um, to create an entirely different world in a story that's soon coming out um, as a science fiction story where I finally get to meet my aliens. <laughs> and it's led me to write uh, particularly about, about civil rights in, in Birmingham, write about Birmingham, actually, my... Um, uh, urban fantasy novels are are set in Birmingham. So Birmingham, the city, has influenced me a lot, but I go wherever wherever my curiosity takes me. And I, I know that's not the best way to define oneself as a writer. I was told that early on. You need to pick, pick a genre and stay with it, and that's what your uh, readers will expect, and that's where you need to go. But for me, it's about loving what I do and, uh, and, and enjoying what I do. So I'm reminded of the words uh, uh, espoused by Popeye, the sailor man. I am what I am. And that essentially <laughs> sounds what you're saying. Ladies and gentlemen, I've had the pleasure here on Watching America as your host, Dr. Ellen Campbell, interviewing uh, a lady of letters, a lady of insight and an appreciation for the multidimensional aspects of not only the civil rights movement, but her her home city, but moreover, the, the nature of, of what it means to be a human being. T.K. Thorne, thank you so very much for being a part of this show. It's been a delight to talk to you. And uh, you're an important segment of the American fabric, and we wouldn't want to have your strands of weaving missing at all. Thank you so very, very much, and we wish you great success. You too. Have a great day. You too. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.